Hey everybody, how's it going? Welcome to JU Israel, a Department of Jerusalem U's podcast, <laughs> The Teacher's Lounge. I'm your host, Michael Unterberg, as always with co-host Alan Goldman. How's it going, Alan? It's going on. I almost said Goldberg because my name is Unterberg, but that would have been wrong. Your name is Goldman. Uh, and this is a podcast where we try to get keep you in touch with Israel, the big ideas, things that are going on, go behind the headlines, and we do all sorts of different topics. But today, a particular um, item in the news pushed our buttons. Is that fair to say, Alan? That's pretty fair to say, but I think I'd like to interject something first that I think is very important information for the podcast, which is we've had a meeting at Bagel Cafe on Emek Refayim, which we've done many of our episodes at this morning. We felt we needed to change a venue. So we made a huge move and went across the street to the Aroma on Emek Refayim to uh, get an ice cafe and to have the podcast. It's good because that's also our exercise for the day. We cross the street, so that's very good. Yeah, so, so I just I, I felt that people really needed to be brought into the atmosphere here at Aroma. Well, they're going to be brought into the atmosphere every time somebody's order is ready and they yell their name. Yeah, pretty much. What do you? What do you? When you order at Aroma and they yell your name, what name do you give them? Ellen. Because if you say your name with American inflection, they have trouble and they get it wrong, right? I just say Mike. It usually works. Mike. They're familiar enough with that. Also have a mic. That you're holding, like the mic. So that's a. Uh, I don't think they got that joke because uh, they're not listening to us. Um, so today's episode is going to be about. It's it's a bit of a weird news story. It's sort of a leaked. Jared Kushner had a conversation with a bunch of interns, and people are freaking out over certain elements of it. There you go. Uh, and we're we're just sort of nitpicking on the part that relates to us very directly like there's things that he said that they're too disorganized to collude or blah 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 Uh, that's not our interest we're not here to talk about american politics we are here to talk about how people reflect on what's going on in israel and there was a certain part of the article that we felt uh expressed a view that many of our students naturally feel so we did not teach uh, Jared. We're not his teacher. Did you teach Jared? I taught his sister. Yeah, lovely girl. At Kushner. She was in the first year of Kushner High School. She was in 10th grade. Really terrific. I was super impressed. Um, but what what part of the article caught your eye, Alan? Do you want to... Well, it's pretty much... Um, <clears throat> A part where he's talking about the importance of, uh, or the importance or lack of importance of history, um, which is something that we struggle with a lot because, um, first of all, our class time is always limited, and you always have to make choices what you're dealing with. And we all often, you know, hear similar things from our students, which is like, okay, so we know that there was a, like history and things happened, but let's solve it today. Like, why do we have to deal with the history when we want to solve the issue today? Today we've got, you know. Uh, two and a half million Palestinians in the West Bank, another one and a half, 1.8, whatever it is in Gaza. You've got Israel has all this control. So let's just solve it. Why, why do we have to go back to 67 or 48 or the Balfour Declaration or, you know, the Romans or, you know, or, da- or King David or like, why is any of that history relevant? And how far do we go back? The magic word that you used is relevant. In other words, it's interesting if you like history. It's not if you don't like learning history. 
But the question is, is it relevant? Is it need to know in order to deal with these issues? So I don't know that this reporting is accurate. It doesn't really matter for our purposes. It's third hand. Well, okay. I don't know if it's accurate, but we will say something about this source that we're reading it from, Aaron David Miller, who is a very respectable source. Yeah. yeah. Aaron David Miller knows what he's talking about. I'll put a link to the article. Aaron David Miller heard a transcript, apparently, but I don't Heard a recording. Can hear a transcript. Yeah, I heard a recording, right. So I'm just saying, like, I don't know, give the guy a break. Like, we don't have him on record saying this. So I'm always a little bit, and it doesn't matter for our purposes, because I'm not, I'm not interested in the political question of does Kushner know how to handle this. I'm interested in, he's expressing an idea that I think speaks for people, probably not only his age and younger, even a lot of people who are older than his age. Oh, you know what it reminds me of? The Louis C.K. Uh, SNL monologue. Yeah. Whereas uh, everything's changed since the 70s except the Middle East. Right. Maybe I'll put a link to that if it's oh, not too... <laughs> maybe you learned it from Louis C.K. But here, I'll just read you a few quotes. Again, I don't care one way or the other about Kushner or not. Well, I'm just saying um, what, 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 is the, what is the statement and what does it express that's, I think, something that is in the zeitgeist. Quote, you know, everyone finds an issue that you have to understand what they did then and you have to understand that they did this. But how does that help us get peace? Let's not focus on that. We don't want a history lesson. We've read enough books. Now, I, don't, I don't know what that statement means about we've read enough books. Well, yeah, we I've, happen to be bookophiles, so. Yeah. <laughs> Bibliophiles who never get enough books, but I don't know, I don't know who the we is either. Um, me and you is the we. I guess. I guess we've read enough books. I don't know. Uh, and then there's another quote. Not a whole lot has been accomplished over the last 40 or 50 years we've been doing this, unquote. Um, and to be fair, he does say that he, he does try to look at the historical context of things. He tried to look at why people weren't successful in the past. And he spoke to a lot of people who have been part of them. And he recognized it's a very emotionally charged situation. So, I don't, again, I'm not... What how, what Kushner means by it is I don't need to unpack Kushner. I just want to unpack that quote of his, and and which I think plays a major role, not only by the way, in the current Trump administration. I think in all governments, this is a real problem. Certainly Obama. Certainly Obama it was obvious. Also in the Obama administration, it was obvious. Absolutely, people coming in and saying, "Well, this can't be that hard. How can it be? I'm looking at the situation as it is now." And uh, the solutions seem pretty obvious, so this shouldn't be that hard. This is absolutely common sentiment. And if you think Israelis leaders don't do that or European leaders don't do that, government people do this a lot. So what we want is a critical, intelligent uh, Jewish world that, that our communal conversations are informed by history well. And then we can hold politicians accountable when they miss things. But we should speak intelligently from history. But our job now, I think, in this episode of the podcast is to prove that things have happened over the last 40, 50 years that are relevant for somebody who's trying to negotiate peace between Israel and the Palestinians. Okay. Uh, I guess I just say it a little bit differently because neither of us are advisors to the people trying to develop peace, though maybe it's one of our students or some of us students will be, I don't know. But more like, 
is relevant for our students to understand. You don't, you don't know that the Trump family doesn't listen to this podcast. <laughs> this is true. And this is true. And since we got a huge bump last week, we're very, very proud of since we had a mass mailing. We've gotten over 750 downloads last week. Um, over 5,000 downloads under 40 episodes. Yeah, pretty cool. Um, anyway, but I think the, the way I'm sort of thinking about it is it's like a classroom. In other words, it, what what is essential? What what is essential history and the, and what has happened over the last fifty years that you have to know to kind of grasp this? What's going on here? Yeah, so I I, well, I guess all I'm I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just adding to that. I'm just a different pan, the pan of our students and like what we do in the classroom. But I always think when I'm in the classroom, that part of what I'm doing is trying to educate uh, informed citizens because in a democracy. An informed citizenry is a necessary component. You with me? Yes. Yes, yes. My pango has uh, has stopped working. Uh, you want to deal with that? We'll pause? Okay. Pango emergency. And if you guys don't know what pango is, you're missing it. We got it going. It's okay. We don't want Alan to get towed. No, I'm just saying that educationally isn't just for the sake of an enlightened individual. It's for an informed citizen. Absolutely. 100%. Okay, so Alan, can you think of anything that's happened in the last, let's say, 40, 50 years that has changed in the Middle East, A, that America has been involved in, but B, that is relevant to anyone trying to help Israelis and Palestinians make peace? Uh, I'm, I'm drawing a blank. Okay, let's, let, so let's assume we're talking post-67. So 67 wars happened, and whatever we know that, right? So let's let make it easier for you, okay? 50 years. How about that? So 50 years of 67. Has anything happened? Now, he's, he's not including 67. He's acknowledging was a big change. Has anything happened since 67 that's relevant? And by the way, I've seen and heard and read people saying 50 years of occupation, nothing has changed. So he is constantly people say that on both sides. It's absolutely a zeitgeist thing. He's expressing an absolute common idea that we think isn't true. Go ahead, Alan. So let's look at it. Um, uh, uh, let's look at it from back to forward, meaning 50 years ago, 50, 49 years ago, what have you. Well, first of all, you have the building of settlements and somewhere, if we cl- include East Jerusalem, because, again, we're talking about over the Green Line now, not what do we consider. Israel considers West Bank. This now we're talking about over the Green Line. So we're talking about some 600,000 Jews now live in those areas, so it's a demographic change. <laughs> so you're saying moving hundreds of thousands of Jews into that land is relevant to any discussion about the peace process, and that change should be noted. And how that happened, and everything that has to do with that change, why that happened, how that happened, what does that mean? What's relevant about how that happened? Uh, Again, not interesting history, relevant for if you're trying to settle things between Israelis and Palestinians. That it happened is very relevant. How it happened? How it happened is relevant because, well, first of all, I guess one has to, if, if we're going to undo, however you're going to change that, or I don't know, change it, I'm trying to work the, the right words, but however you're going to deal with that situation, so you have to know how it came about. Um, you have to gain the, the motivations, the, the political decisions that were made, and the personal decisions of the people, and, and the interplay between that. And then also how, how this affected what's happened on the ground. Um, the, the distribution of resources, um, the, creation of, the creation of infrastructure. 
So it's relevant that the government supported it and supplied it. That's relevant. It's also relevant, I think, why people are there. In other words, we have this image of people being there for purely ideological reasons. I can assure you that many of my neighbors are there for economic reasons. Well, absolutely. And we know one of the whole big, big boom was with the Russian, big Russian aliyah, which is another big change that's happened <laughs> in the last 50 years. And you had many, many Russian Jews, Israelis moving to those territories. Another big change. If we want to move on to other changes. Yeah? Uh, peace with Egypt? Is that a big change or lo- no little change? Like Israel, up until 1978, would not have basically direct talks with any of their neighbors and in, and then went into direct talks with Egypt, the biggest Arab country, um, certainly the biggest population. And while it's a cold peace, it is an Arab recognition of the existence of Israel and open diplomatic relationship, Jordan as well. Right, the, the diplo- diplomatic uh, relations, full diplomatic relations, even given the problems we're having right now with Jordan, which happened last week, but um, uh, all kinds, of, I mean, everything. It, it's a peace. It, it is full government recognition. And if you're thinking about it as an outside country trying to think how to help, there may actually be lessons there of things that worked because you have American administrations that actually were involved in helping foster that peace. That, absolutely. That, and the model there um, that, that works, if, you'll re, if you read the Aaron David Miller piece that we'll attach onto here, he talks about how, well, if they had actually looked at the Egyptian um, model for making peace with Israel, Israel and Egyptian model for peace, they would have known that the Camp David in 2000 between Arafat and Barak and, and America was going to fail because it didn't have the same uh, ingredients that they had between Israel, Egypt, and, and America at that time. So that's one. What were the missing ingredients? I, by the way, I think he's missing a major, major ingredient of what worked so what with Egypt. Say? Yeah, what does he say? It did work with Egypt. He said there was two strong leaders, Menachem Begin and Anmar Sadat, who were very strong leaders who wanted change. They, they, they were bought into it. And a strong uh, American president who was uh, very even and heavy-handed. I think it's debatable that he was strong or even. But he may, he may think that. But I think, I think you... I, I don't remember him at least... I don't remember him saying or even... At least not emphasizing that it wasn't just that the leaders in Israel and Egypt were strong leaders. Was that this, this, this was their initiative. When the people... When the leaders in the region say... We want peace. We will take our first steps to peace. And then the Americans step in and say, well, can we help? That's productive. Well, the reason why I may not have mentioned because Oslo was an initiative. America was brought in after the Palestinians and the Israelis met in Oslo, right? That's why it's called the Oslo and not the Washington, even though they signed in Washington. So maybe, I don't know. I'm just... Could be, except that in Oslo, it wasn't the leader's initiative. It didn't, it was, Oslo wasn't a top-down. It was a middle-up. Representatives of Israel and Palestinians met at uh, Madrid, delivered a fait accompli to their leadership, who then said, okay, I guess we're behind it. So you didn't, I would argue that Rabin was a pretty strong prime minister, and Arafat was certainly a stronger leader of the Palestinians and Abbas. You had two strong leaders. But that was, that was, uh, we didn't gospel. We're talking, he's talking about Camp David failure, which was already Barak and Arafat. The failure wasn't the beginning of Oslo. The failure was the end of Oslo, let's say 2000, with the Camp David falling apart, where Rabin was already not in, and Arafat was a weakened leader by that point. 
I, I guess, but and Barack certainly wanted it to work, but the whole initiative wasn't really a top-down leader initiative, I don't think. Okay. I, I probably should do an uh, episode on Oslo and, uh, and doing that. So other things that have changed. So Oslo itself. <laughs> Oslo itself has changed. The paradigm between the, 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 the Palestinians and Israel have changed in the last 50 years, incredibly in the last... 25 years of Oslo. Like Oslo, hate Oslo, think it was the worst thing in the world, think it was the thing that's, that is still the model. It, it has made a major change. First of all, you, the establishment of the Palestinian Authority uh, that has given some kind of autonomous control of Palestinians to 40% of the West Bank. That's a huge change in the last 50 years. A huge change. Um, What's the difference between areas A, B, and C as constructed by Oslo? So, the whole, in other words, politically, the West Bank has changed enormously over the last fifty years. That, that political division between A, B, and C is a huge change. Where if you, if Area A is run by the Palestinians with under civilian and and um, security control, Area B is a joint control. You could say civilian control by the Palestinians and security control by Israel, and Area C is full Israel security and um, civ- uh, civilian. Uh, it's full Israeli army, civil and military control. The Israeli army controls, which is still 60% of the West Bank. But changing the political status quo in 40% of the West Bank through that negotiated process is a very big change. You can like it, you cannot like it. It's a change, and it changes everything. It changes the whole dynamic. Yeah, that's a, that's a huge change. Um, so there, there have been some uh, major changes, of course. Um, that's not even. We didn't even touch on the fact that Israel has withdrawn from 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 the Gaza Strip and only controls three borders, including the water border and and the air. But anything inside the Strip and the and the border with Egypt is controlled by the by Hamas, the Palestinian terrorist organization. So withdrawing from Gaza is a pretty big change. I, I really think you have to argue that. I'm not sure how you couldn't argue that. <laughs> okay. How about two intifadas? Pretty big. Pretty big. Pretty big, and I don't know that it's relevant. Certainly the relevance of expressing the Palestinian desire for independence, because really until the first intifada, I would say, you had the PLO as a terrorist organization fighting for Palestinian independence, but the you didn't have a grassroots the Palestinian street was not up in arms until 87 in the first intifada where you now have a popular uprising which has really changed the atmosphere and the tone of Palestinian culture and even more than the first intifada the the first intifada interestingly I think made the conversation in Israel change to we really have to do something we have to give these people autonomy in the Israeli street the second intifada shut that conversation down yeah, the first intifada led to Oslo, I think. Second, and the second intifada, intifada kills Oslo, and 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 I think at least we'll, we'll talk about the consensus in Israel, which I see myself as part of. Has has I guess everybody sees herself as the consensus, but um, but that most Israelis, although would like to come to some kind of agreement and peace and work this whole thing out, are very skeptical because of the second intifada and the situation in Gaza. I mean, that the situation in Gaza is so relevant because it has formed Israeli's opinion of what can be achieved and what can't be achieved in terms of in terms of dialoguing with the Palestinians. Now, 
without getting into all the politics and oh, but Israel's this and that, the way it at least is 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 understood in the Israeli consensus is that we withdrew and we've gotten rockets. I know that's simplistic, but that's how most of Israelis, and that's what's going to lead the conversation. I don't think it's simplistic to argue that that an Israeli military withdrawal from the West Bank. Well, the day after is the beginning of the chaos of the West Bank. And there, you're not, Israel's, you know, end the occupation now means begin the chaos now. In Israeli's ears. In Israeli's ears. But I don't know how you could argue that there's enough of a stable political, governmental, civil infrastructure in the West Bank to support stability without Israel's military oversight. And coordination with Palestinian security forces. Well, I mean, look, the huge criticism of the of the Gaza one, which was the criticism of the time too, if, if anybody was listening to, was that it was unilateral. It wasn't really done with any kind of discussion, or in, it was an incremental. It was completely unilateral overnight. Uh, so those who argue, at least those who are, I think, have at least sane, who argue for an Israel withdrawal to sixty-seven borders. Don't don't see it happening like the Gaza. Yeah, but that argument, to my ears, sounds like the thing I'm always harping on. What are the Palestinians doing? We'll negotiate. Who's harping on? I don't know. Everyone always talks about what Israel needs to do. And if Israel does this differently, the outcome will be different. Really? If Israel negotiates with, Palest- with Abbas to withdraw its military from the West Bank, does Abbas have the civil, political, and security infrastructure to prevent chaos the next day? Once Sahal leaves the West Bank, it has nothing to do with Israel's methodology. I, I agree there's a very big difference in unilateral withdrawal and negotiated withdrawal. But once you withdraw... Incremental. In, we're talking incremental withdrawal. If you negotiate an incremental withdrawal with an establishment of a Western-style political, civil, military, logistical infrastructure then you're not really talking about withdrawal. You're talking about the Palestinians establishing a proto-state that can assume the responsibility of negotiating and implementing that deal. Which, if that's what you mean by incremental, then fine. Then you're talking about changing the Palestinian power dynamic, changing the Palestinian organizational structure, changing the cultural conversation. You're talking about Fayyadism. When Salam Fayyad said, first let's organize and behave like a state, and then we'll declare it, and then the world has to recognize it. But until we run a, a, a not entirely uh, corruption-based kleptocracy, and we're running the actual infrastructure of an actual state, we shouldn't talk about state till then. That side of it is the side that often gets left out of these conversations. And there... Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I'd like to think the people that I respect on the left, who I don't whether I agree, don't necessarily agree with, but always, but I respect them that that's what they're talking about. Who on the left is saying, end the occupation tomorrow? No, I don't think they are. Why? Because of that. I think that that's exactly it. I think you hear from out of the Israeli left. The intelli- okay, you always have fringe voices. But people not involved in the day-to-day politics. I think people misunderstand the Israeli left. I think radical voices on the left out of the country think they are speaking in the name of the Israeli left when they misrepresent them. I think you should drop the word radical. I think that you even have very people generally moderate. And that's what we talk about, you know... Uh, 
Jewish students who's like, okay, let's just end it now. Let's figure, we, you know, it can be ended. Why can't we do it? And I don't think they don't understand the intricacies because they don't understand what people like Yariv Oppenheimer, right, who's, who's deep into it, who I've heard speak many times. We've brought him to our programs to speak, ha- has a very deep understanding of the history and the relevance of the things we're talking about. Uh, so. Well, that's why I feel very upset when I hear people speaking in the name of, you know, what I'm saying is what they're saying in the Israeli left. I would argue that Yariv is probably as far left as you can get within mainstream Israeli politics. And he's not saying anything like end the occupation tomorrow. Right. No, because, because of exactly yeah. this. These things that we're talking about that are relevant need to be addressed. You can't, you can't just write them off and say, well, it's history. Who cares about it? Let's, what are we going to do about it now? Because those things, those historical processes affected how we got to where we are now. So if you want to... To, to change the future, you have to understand how we got to the, where we are. I'll give you another relevant piece. The Bush administration under Condoleezza Rice decided, uh, I mean, Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, they, negotiated, they, they called all the players to Annapolis, Maryland, and President Bush said we'll have a deal signed by the end of the year. They pushed the Palestinians to hold elections. The Palestinians weren't super comfortable holding elections because they don't have a democratic infrastructure. But the Bush administration helped them set up the election infrastructure. They held the elections. Hamas won. Hamas won, most analysts said, not because the people were such radical terrorist supporters, but because Hamas, as a religious organization, actually provided social services to people under its control, whereas the, uh, the Fatah Palestinian political establishment was basically stealing foreign aid and building villas and cars, and the people were so sick of the corruption, they'll vote for anybody, they voted for Hamas. The Fatah party did not step down. There was a brief civil war in Gaza, and Hamas took over in Gaza. The Israeli army helped stop the civil war in the West Bank from coming to fruition, and Fatah to this day has not respected the election, and they have not held another election. So what you have is when an outside force says, I'm going to give an element of democracy to you. I'm going to demand that you use a really non-essential element of democracy, if you understand. As a, I, I, I think there's a misunderstanding if you ask somebody, what's the clearest evidence of democracy? And they'll say elections. Well, Iran has pretty free elections. Just the Ayatollah picks who's going to run. And if you insult the Ayatollah in public in Tehran, you're going to end up in jail or worse. So that's not a really good campaign strategy. I think it's a very good campaign strategy because whoever wins the election wins with over 90% of the vote, as they do all over the Muslim and Arab world when they have these phony elections. Democracy isn't about elections. Democracy is about the people having freedom. If you can stand in the capital city of that country and say the president or the prime minister is a doofus, if you can write on a blog or on Facebook or I hate the prime minister. Free access to the internet. If you even have free access to the internet. If it's a country where the people are free and the government works for the people, with all due criticisms of those government doing a good job or a bad job or they're corrupt or they're really not or politics are broken or whatever it is, but at least functionally the people are free to criticize that government when they do a bad job and are free to live their lives as they choose. That's a democracy. So holding an election doesn't make it a democracy, and it didn't. That Bush mistake is a crucial mistake that you don't want to do anything like. 
On the contrary, you want to create, if you want stability on both sides of the green line, you have to push for a stronger democratic systems in both sides. In Freedom House's rankings of the West Bank and Israel, on the scale of 1 to 100, Israel gets an 80, which is a high, pretty, you're in the top uh, tier of free countries where it's people who live here have freedom. West Bank is not a place where people have freedom. But why, uh, so that Freedom House, is that because of the PA or because of Israel? The answer is yes. It's because of both, because, because they share rule of the West Bank. 40% is ruled administratively by the Palestinian Authority that doesn't give them freedom. And the other 60%, I don't know what percentage of Arabs live in Area C, but they don't... 100,000 Arabs live in the West Bank, in the Area C. So close to 2 million live... A quarter of the West Bank, 400,000 Jews and about 100,000... 100,000, that's a, that's a quarter of Area C, you're saying. Yeah, but that's not a quarter of the Arabs who live in the West Bank. No, no. It's a, it's a fraction of the Arabs who live in the West Bank, most of whom live... It's 5%. So something like 90-95% live under Palestinian Authority control and do not have basic freedom of the press, freedom of religion, freedom of... If you eat a sandwich in, in, uh, in Hebron and Ramadan, you could be arrested in public. <laughs> or, or if you eat uh, chametz in, uh, in the zoo in uh, Israel. You could be arrested? Uh, you can get a ticket. If a Jew is eating, there's tickets. You can get a ticket. Uh, uh, like a restaurant that serves chometz during Pesach, you can get a ticket. If it's not a kosher restaurant? No, even if it's not a kosher. It's a chometz rule. It's not a kosher rule. That's obscene. Okay, anyway, that's another. That's a topic for another podcast. I didn't know that. Is that really true? <laughs> it's really true. That's crazy. There's a chometz rule in Israel during Pesach. That's a chometz law. That's a rule. If you can get a ticket, then that's your violation of a law. It's chometz law. It does not apply to non-Jews. That's why Israel. That's why it's businesses, not persons. I think so. Therefore, business cannot serve chometz if it's owned by a Jew. Oh, fine. So a person can sit and take out of their uh, backpack a sandwich and eat it on Pesach and not get a ticket. Correct, but a business can't serve. That's a business, and that's a different right. Okay, so that's so then it's not. I can I can take out a sandwich in the zoo and eat it on on Pesach. Thrown out of the zoo. That was the whole. Case. They were thrown out of the zoo for it. Uh, we have to look at it. Well, 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 okay, we'll look into it. Good, uh, we should quit that at a topic for the future. Israel, religious, uh, yeah, I don't know. Religion, I don't, state, religion and state. Yeah, religion and state is probably a whole bunch of episodes, but I don't know how you can defend in a democracy giving a person a ticket for eating chametz on peso. Yeah, well. Um, Again, I don't know if the law is you can't serve it or you can't, you can't, you can't. It's certainly not you can't eat it. You can definitely eat it. It's definitely so. It must be you can't serve it. It's like oh, in so Israel, the alcohol law is, is the, you can't serve to a minor, but a minor is not forbidden from drinking. Right. That's just how you legislate things. And if you want to create an atmosphere where people can go where they want on Pesach, and the majority of the company doesn't eat chametz on Pesach country, and they don't want places, so you find a place for serving chametz, which which hurts as a social service. But that's different than an individual Israeli pulling a sandwich out of their backpack and eating it. This is where we get a ta- yeah, but this is where we get the tangent of uh, McDonald's and serve- McDonald's serving a cheeseburger on a pesadica roll. <laughs> because, right, they don't serve chumet, but they sell... You're allowed to have a not-kosher restaurant. Yeah, I don't know why. That rule sounds neat, like it needs some looking into but it's a pretty strange situation but it's certainly no comparison again Freedom House which is an objective measure of these things 
gives Israel an 80 on the freedom list. It's definitely not in the top. Israel Israel proper, not Israel over the Green Line. Correct, but the Green Line gets a very low rating. The vast majority of Arabs living under Palestinian civil authority do not have freedom. Now, you could say that that's because of the occupation of the Israeli army. You could make that argument, but I'm making a different argument. I'm forgetting, but a Freedom House, if I remember, the question is, is how much is based on Palestinian authority and how much is based on Israel? Because Israel also... Right. Well, if 90, 95%, look, I, I, do, I don't think they're counting me, one of the three to 400,000 Jews who live in the West Bank, is unfree. Me, Michael Unterberg. I think they're counting the Arabs who live in the West Bank, 90 to 95% of whom live under Arab control in the West Bank, where they're not given freedom. So I think that answers your question. I don't think they care about if it's area A, B, or C, but most Arabs do not have freedom in the West Bank. Families barred from Israeli Park for having bread on Passover. All right, well, we'll have to look at that later. Later, Alan. Alan. Sorry. I got it funny. Again, I don't, I don't, if I remember. I apologize for your co-host, ladies and gentlemen. It's not just, again, the, I don't think it's just the PA. It's Israel's also handling of the Palestinians. If 90 to 95% of Arabs living under the PA, does it, does it 5% who don't live under the PA? The PA is, so it's a question. The PA is under Israel, essentially. Yeah, but their civic freedoms are not being curtailed by the Israeli army. The Israeli army doesn't mind if you post on Facebook, Abbas is an idiot. Uh, well, the Israeli... They, they, who's holding up Abbas is the, it's Israel, but... I, I understand that there's an indirect thing, that because of the situation in Sahel overall and the fact that Israel won't withdraw means that they have certain... Uh, uh, responsibility for what's going on in the West Bank. I'm not denying that. But the, but the civil administration that's not allowing for freedom of the press, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of religion, is the Palestinian Authority. So we have to go back, you have to go into the Freedom House and see what they are, that they are that's what they're... They don't, they don't clarify. But it doesn't matter. I'm talking about, if they're talking about 100% of the Arabs don't have freedom, 95 of that 100% are because of the civil administration of the Palestinians. The Palestinians could give them full freedom. No, but Israel is often, uh, you know, like in Area B where they are under military control of this site, limits, limits their... The notice Freedom House doesn't distinguish between the Palestinian Authority... It, it doesn't, I don't think it does. It measures if the citizens have freedom of religion, freedom of speech, and then gives you a score based on that. If the Palestinian Authority gave its people the equivalent of the Bill of Rights or the closest they could get to it, would the score go up? Or do you think Freedom House would have to say no, but there's still an Israeli authority, so I can't raise their score? Uh, I'm not sure. I am. Okay. I am. We're at an impasse. But I don't know why. Logically, if the if 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 Fatah said you can write what you want in, on Facebook, you can write what you want. On, if if reporters are beaten up and arrested, and their families are threatened, whose fault is that they don't have a passport, so their freedom of movement is limited? I don't even know if that's a thing in Freedom House. But I'm passport freedom of movement is a huge part of of the of the equation of how much freedom a person has. So you're arguing, here's your argument now. If Fatah said, we are no longer going to arrest reporters for for criticizing the government, we're not going to put you in jail or break your thumbs, their number wouldn't go up. That's what you're arguing. If if Israel gave all the Palestinians in, in in the West Bank passports, freedom of movement, took down the machzomim, let's say, 
yada yada, all those things. You don't think the the number the number would go up also? It probably would a little, but that's not the basic thing keeping the number down at twenty three. I don't know. I'm not so convi- I'm not so convinced. Okay, take a look. Uh, we'll take a, we'll take a closer look at Freedom House. But I think if you look at it, the most basic freedoms of speech, assembly, press, religion. The most basic freedoms that we think of do not exist, and that's not on Israel. That's on the Palestinians. And if you want a stable society, you more or less have to have a stable democratic society because you're not going to have a strong enough warlord keeping them in control, certainly not a boss. As much as I would find that an odious thing to help create anyway, a warlord culture— you're not going to have a Saddam Hussein state in 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 the West Bank. That was the, that was the original idea of Oslo. <laughs> was that no? Rabin said it very clearly. Was that let's bring in the PLO? Let's bring in Arafat. They will shut down the second, the first Intifada because they could do things that we can't do. Well, I don't know if that speaks for everybody's hopes for Oslo, but certainly the paradigm today, as it's spoken of, is as if you're going to create a a, a, a democratic neighbor state to Israel. And I don't see that as a realistic assumption that people make. And I don't think people spend enough time talking about that. And that's something that hasn't changed enough over the last 50 years. And I think that's where um, efforts must be focused. How do I create a stable, healthy Palestinian infrastructure so that when Sahal withdraws, it will not become a terrorist haven like Gaza. I think that that's where you'll find a lot of the frustration, certainly in the Israeli side. I mean, speaking for Israelis now, is that it, it, it's very hard to see that there's that desire um, in the Palestinian side. There isn't. Um, and, that's what's, uh, and so that's why you'll find the consensus in Israel says, yeah, we would love peace someday, but we don't, we're not think it's really going to happen. Look, I wouldn't argue that all Israelis understand democracy or why we should have it or that we have it or that it's a real thing. Or even our ministers. Unfortunately, you have people in many democracies who don't get the importance of democracy, but they're in democracies. The systems are set up that they get to live in a democracy and say things like, I don't care about democracy and walk away and go to sleep at night. And maybe they shouldn't be ministers and maybe they should be ministers, but that's not the point. The point is it is a democracy. And and, and what the structure is, as it, treating the Fatah which is a party in the middle of a civil war, in the middle of a society with a civil war, about against... Like, it's just so many layers of dysfunction. The idea of a withdrawal... And, and that is why history is relevant. And that is why you have to know the place to know the, relevant, uh, to know the relevance of it. Just like you need to know... We didn't even talk about the revolution, the, all, the revolu- the, all the social change and governmental change that's happened across the Middle East in the last six years. Right, the Arab Spring. Nothing that happened in the Arab Spring is going to be relevant to this peace negotiation. Nothing that to- and what's happened to Syria and how Syria ended up like that. And if you don't know that that Syria, how Syria was created, and it was created as a minority ruling over majority, uh, as was Lebanon. How have things been going in Lebanon over the last fifty years? Well, apparently, uh, Jared's father-in-law, President Trump, thought that his bullah, the Lebanese government, was fighting his bullah. So, when they are in the Lebanese government, so. That lack of understanding absolutely matters. And that's why we think our job is a good job and why, and why we, we and think... why the Bush failed and that's why Obama failed and that's why, you know, you had lots of failures because they didn't really know the relevant issues and the relevant history. And I think that the smartest thing Jared said, which was the, 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 
the headline in the Times of Israel article was Jared said, this might not be possible. We might not be successful. I think that's a very realistic and intelligent assessment. And they said it sort of like dismissive. Oh, look what he's saying. Well, that's a very mature understanding of the issue. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's, you know, I mean, the Danny Gordis has a book he wrote. His la- and that's his last book, the previous book he wrote on that, which is uh, a war that can't win or something like that. Israel, a war that you can't win or something, how you live. I think that. But the idea basically of – and that can be very – that can be very frustrating, I think, for many people, and very, very particularly um, younger people who tend to idealize more and want to see that the, everything is able to be accomplished in their lifetimes, and can be a source of great frustration for our particular group of students um, who love Israel and want to be part of Israel, but like want to know, okay, when, when are we going to solve this problem? Well, I remember Rav Amital said that the only problem with Shalom Achshav isn't that they want Shalom, is that they think they can do it Achshav. That is, he called it Achshavism, Nowism. The, the fact that you think things... Or I used to say to my ninth grade students, you can't use the J word in my classroom. That's a dirty word. What's the J word? Why didn't they just do this? Why didn't the Hasmoneans just do this? Why didn't the Israeli government just do this? Why didn't... Why didn't King Herod just do this? Because ju- if, if they didn't, then that means it's not so simple. And understanding the complexity is the first step in being an educated consumer. And with that, I think let's wrap up. Uh, thank you very much, Alan. And thank you, Mike. Thanks, everybody. And uh, of our downloaders, if some of you could give us some stars on iTunes. I know it's a little bit of a pain to go onto iTunes and, and click, but it's not that much of a pain. It's kind of like the pain of when you're reading a book in class and your teacher says, put your finger here and I want to look at something 50 pages then and we'll come back. And all the kids roll their eyes about what a big effort. I understand, but it's not that big a pain. So if you could give us a few stars, we'd really appreciate it. Get us a little bit more on the iTunes map. Okay. Thanks so much, everybody. Thanks again, Alan. Thanks again, Mike. And Seitzkalim Shalom will continue, I guess, when you're in the States, no? We'll continue. We'll do a Skype episode. That's right. Um, and if you have, as always, if you have any suggestions for topics or questions you want answers, please let us know. Bye-bye. This has been JU Israel, the Teacher's Lounge podcast. Please check out our website, juisrael.jerusalemu.org, for episodes, blog posts, and contact information. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever you use for podcasts. But you knew that, right? Uh, you can follow our Facebook page at the Teachers Lounge Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at JUIsraelGap. Please keep in touch with us with questions, comments, feedback, and suggestions. And if you know somebody who would enjoy our podcast in general or an episode in particular, we love it when people recommend us. Thank you, guys. <laughs>